Today I'm going to be talking about some of the secrets of the Christian life, okay? Uh, Or not just the Christian life, but some of the secrets of living a successful life as well. We're in week five of our teaching series looking at the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount uh, is arguably one of the most famous speeches in human history, certainly one of the most influential speeches in human history. And uh, we've been looking at that over the weeks that we've been, we've been doing this talk uh, and this sermon series. Basically, Jesus uh, went up onto a mountainside, uh, gathered his followers together and talked to them about what life looks like following him. It's his kingdom manifesto. This is what it means to follow me, he said, and then uh, starts speaking about that. And we're in week five of that today. And so if you have a Bible, uh, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 5. Um, but before we get there, let me say this. When I, when I first became a Christian, someone said to me, the secret of the Christian life is the Christian life in secret. And what they meant when they said that wasn't that the secret is about becoming a ninja and being really stealth and not, not letting anyone know that you're a Christian. If you do that, then you, you, you've got the secret. No, the secret of the Christian life is what goes on in secret. When no one else is around, okay, your private self, in many ways, is the true you, who you are when no one else is watching. Nicky Gumbel, uh, who started the Alpha course, he tells the story of um, a sailor called Michael Plant, who in 1992 is a very accomplished yachtsman, and in 1992 uh, planned to set sail from the US to France across the Atlantic in one of the most state-of-the-art yachts of his time. Everyone was very excited because he was such a good sailor, convinced he was going to make it and everything was going to be fine. He had a you know, state-of-the-art yacht, as I mentioned. Eleven days after he set sail, they lost radio contact with Michael Plant. A few days after that, they set out the search party. And given his expertise and given the boat that he went in, imagine their horror when they came across the yacht capsized halfway across the Atlantic. Michael Plant tragically lost at sea. And the sailing community just were wondering what happened. Boats, these kind of boats just should not capsize. You see, all yachts, all boats work on the principle that as long as there is more weight underneath the waterline than there is above it, a yacht shouldn't capsize. It should always right itself if that's the case. And so as a result, boats have underneath them on their keel substantial weights to make sure that the predominant weighting of a boat is underneath the waterline. When they came to, to plant's yacht, they saw that the, the 8,000 pound weight that was on his keel had been ripped off and it was that that caused the boat to capsize. You see, that might, no one knows how that happened, maybe in a storm or some, just some tricky weather that he uh, came into. But the point is this, the boat sailing along looked like every other yacht or ship on the ocean. Above the surface it was fine, but underneath there was no weight. There was nothing to hold it so that when storms came, there was nothing to keep it from capsizing. What goes on under the surface of your life is what matters most. What goes on underneath the surface of your life is what matters most. And part of the secret of the Christian life is learning then to set appropriate priorities. So so Stephen Covey wrote a book uh, called The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. I'm sure you all do them because I know you are very effective, highly effective people. And one of the things he said in that book is that the key is not to prioritize your schedule, but to schedule your priorities. Okay, so most of us, uh, we look at the amount that we've got to get done in a day and we work out which is the most important one of those things that I need to do first and we prioritize that way around. Whereas what Covey says is actually rather than looking at your schedule, you should look at your priorities. What are the things that are most important to me and then schedule them. We've often talked about the difference between urgent and important, haven't we? 
There's very, very little important things in life are particularly urgent. Very, uh, quite a lot of trivial things are very urgent. So I'm having a conversation with my wife. We're out at the restaurant. Um, first date night together in weeks. The kids aren't around and my phone goes. We're in the middle of conversation. What do I do? Well, this is urgent because my phone's going. It's ringing in my face. But this is important. And so I cancel the call <laughs> in favor of the important over the urgent. And that's what Covey says we need to do. So Jesus talking to his disciples now in the section that we're going to read on the Sermon on the Mount is talking about some of the things that are most important in the Christian life. They're not urgent. You could put it off tomorrow. You could leave it for a month. You could leave it for a year. They're not urgent, but they are extremely important. So we're going to read it together. But what we're going to do today that's a little bit different is um, as we read it, you're going to help me with my sermon framework basically for this morning and my sermon prep. Uh, as we read it, I want you to just be observing some of the themes and ideas that begin to repeat themselves. And then at the end of that, I just want you to turn to someone nearby and just tell them what are some of the overarching themes and words and ideas that come across in this reading? Because if we identify them, we'll identify what Jesus is really driving at. Okay, that makes sense? Matthew 6 Verses 1 to 18, let's read it together. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who's in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they've received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room, shut the door, and pray to your Father who's in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think they'll be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites. For they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they've received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who's in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Okay. So in pairs, or just with the people around you, have a chat and see if you can identify what were some of the repeating words and ideas and themes in what Jesus was talking about that help us glean what it is he wants us to hear from that.
Okay. Let's have some, uh, some feedback then. What are some of the big ideas and big themes that repeat themselves and come across in this reading? Marlon. <laughs> yeah, what's what did your group come up with? Okay, so yeah, the idea of motives comes up. Any others? Oh, that's good. Keep your head down, your mouth shut, okay. <laughs> okay, so no boasting, similar to the, the motives thing. Before God, not men. One more, Tiago. Okay, great. It has a lot to do with the intentions of your heart. Fantastic. Okay, so we're going to take some of those that you've thrown out and we'll work, work through what Jesus has to say to us. So first of all, I want to look at is Jesus repeats this idea of uh, rewards and disciplines, disciplines and rewards. And by disciplines, I mean praying, giving, fasting. Um, disciplines are, is a dirty word to some. Don't talk about discipline. Um, but it's the practice of doing something on purpose uh, in order to get uh, a desired result. It's the, the discipline is the chair that you use to get the cookies off the counter, okay? So six months ago, we were around the Bowyer's house and their son, Levi, was just about, about two at the time. Uh, we were sitting in one room and could just hear this scrape, clunk, scrape, clunk, scrape, clunk. And I thought, what on earth is that? John said, he's just moving the chair to the counter. Because <laughs> he knows if I can get that there and climb up on there, there's chocolate, there's cake, because Abby's always baking. Um, so that's what he knows. Discipline is like that. So it's not a dirty thing. It's a good thing that helps us get what we want. Jesus says, when you pray, when you give, when you fast, uh, I guess what's underneath that is Jesus saying, you're going to do these things, right? <laughs> for, the, for the Jewish people, those were the big three that was part of Jewish customs, Jewish life. Jesus saying, they're going to carry on for you when you start following me. We're not ditching them. We're going to keep doing them. And I guess in a room like this, we'd say, when you pray, and be like, oh yeah, I pray. Yeah, I mean, 90% of people allegedly pray, surveys tell us, I pray. Yeah, okay, so we don't, perhaps you understand prayer, we won't talk about prayer. Uh, when you give, uh, when you fast, uh, I imagine in a room like this, when we talk about giving and fasting, there's probably just a broad spectrum of people going, yeah, yeah, I give to you know, those pots, the people of the charities, shops, when I come out, put 2p, 5p, 10p in there. I go to church, proper church, on Christmas, and they pass the buckets around, oh yeah, I give my kids some money to put in, and they give, yeah, give, we do that. Martin Luther said that, um, the reformer said that there are three conversions that everybody has to go through, right? The conversion of the heart, conversion of the mind, and the conversion of the wallet. And the wallet always comes last. <laughs> and we've talked about that before. And we talk a lot about giving, and you're probably sick of hearing sermons on giving, but Jesus mentions it, okay? So when you give, and when you fast, huh? Now, interestingly, these three, um, praying, giving, fasting, it's like Eat, Pray, Love, the film that came out last year. Except you notice the film, uh, they changed the word fast for eat. You know, eat, pray, love. I'll, I'll give, I'll love, I'll do nice things, but we'll eat instead of fasting. Uh, and that's probably indicative of our culture's approach to this whole, whole area of fasting. I think it's true that greed is probably one of the subtlest and yet most significant idols in our society. And it's because of that, we don't often talk about things like giving and fasting and we have an aversion to it because greed is kind of in us. We want, we need, we must, we're consumers. But so eat, pray, love. Let me just talk about fasting for a second. 
Um, I, I don't know if any of you have fasted before. Fasting is essentially the practice of, of going without in order to get something else. Going without something in order to get something else. Um, a lot of people don't call it fasting. They just call it dieting. But that's what they're doing, right? I want this body. I don't know why it's up there. This heavenly body, to get that, I will have fruit juice and nothing else. And that's a fast because you have seen something that you want, you desire it. So that's very common. But the, but the idea of a religious fast, fasting for God, is something that actually just makes people quite angry. Not necessarily you guys, but I know when I've spoken to friends of mine who aren't church people about fasting, they hate the idea. They think it's a horrible thing. Which is funny, because we live in a country that has an abundance of food, and yet we don't talk about fasting. That's curious. So what is fasting? As I said, it's going without to get something else. Um, it's misleading, because it's, it's called fasting, and yet if you've ever tried it before, you know that days go slower when you fast. They don't go quicker. But the, the word fast, when we use it in this sense, we use it in the sense of to fasten, to fasten something, or to cling on. And if you look at the references to fasting in the Bible, you see that that's the the heart of fasting. It's to cling on, to hold fast to God. And Jesus is saying that's the point of fasting. Cling on to God. Hold fast to God. Come what may. And that's why he says it's so wrong that these people are fasting for show because it's about clinging on to God. Now, as a church, I'm hoping that we can learn journeys of fasting together in the coming months. Uh, currently, we've just invited people to join us in fasting from food uh, the first Wednesday of the month till the end of the year. So I don't know if you've been doing that. I'm not checking up. Um, but that's what we're doing as a way of us fastening ourselves to God more and more. But the first secret then of the Christian life that Jesus says with this emphasis on disciplines and rewards is this. What matters isn't the activity that you do, but it's the audience that you do it to. What matters isn't the activity you do, but the audience that you do it to. So Jesus talks about disciplines, when you do this, when you do that, and he links it to this idea of rewards. You know, you're all treasure hunters, you're all pirates at heart, so when you go after treasure, do it like this to make sure you get the proper treasure that you actually want. If you want reward from God, this is how you're to fast. Uh, it's your motive that matters. And if you get that wrong, you may as well not bother. Uh, Tom Wright, in one of his books, describes an occasion he went to the Middle East and um, went out to the shop and bought a chocolate bar. Um, took the, the wrapper of the chocolate bar, but fortunately looked at it before he put it in his mouth. Because when he looked down at it, he saw that it was riddled with worms. <laughs> and he was like, oh, that's horrible, throw it away. If your motive's wrong... Whatever you do is essentially riddled with worms, is what Jesus is saying. It might look like chocolate on the outside, but underneath it's just it's going rotten. But when we talk about rewards in the Christian life, often people go, is it, often people ask the question, is it wrong, is it wrong to do something for a reward? To do something good or noble or charitable with an eye to the reward. Is that wrong? People often say, oh, I, I, do, I do that, but I don't, I'm not after any reward because to desire a reward would be wrong. That's a popular idea. It's popular, but it's not biblical. It's not right. Firstly, I mean, there's no such thing as an entirely selfless act. Okay? Everything you do has a selfish motive in it. Secondly, 
I mean, even if you think it doesn't, you're trying to aspire to some altruistic ideal that you've come up with that you think is virtuous and Jesus doesn't. So that's, again, you trying to satisfy your own ideal rather than Jesus. But secondly, you read Jesus' teaching and it is littered with incentives of reward. Do this, get this. If you do this, you'll get this. Jesus doesn't blush at the idea of rewards. But the thi- so we, we looked at this in the Sermon on the Mount already. In, uh, in chapter 5, Blessed are those who blessed are you when you're persecuted, because great is your reward. A child's escaped. My child, so it's okay. <laughs> Less okay for the future of the children's work. Um, blessed are you when you're persecuted or when people speak wrong of you, he says, because great will your reward be. That's what Jesus is saying. So he says it's okay to have rewards. The difference then, if, the, if, if it's okay to have rewards in mind, the difference is to understand that there's appropriate rewards for things and inappropriate rewards for things. Uh, C.S. Lewis, the Narnia writer, talks about this. He says that um, money is an inappropriate reward for love. So people who marry for money, it's an inappropriate reward. Uh, we call them gold diggers or other things. But marriage isn't. Marriage isn't an inappropriate reward for love. Okay? You love someone and you desire one day to be married to them. That's the reward that you want, the culmination of your love and commitment. That's not wrong to desire marriage. Fame is an inappropriate motive for fighting in a battle. If you're a general of an army and you think, I will fight this in order to be thought well of by my peers, that's the inappropriate motive. But victory isn't. I'll fight this because I want to win. I have an honor reward. It's not an inappropriate reward. Here, Jesus is saying, gaining approval or respect before men is an inappropriate reward for fasting, giving, and praying. But the appropriate reward comes from God. Have an eye on that. So this is the first secret then of the Christian life, that what matters most isn't the activity you do, but the audience that you do it to. And what treasure you get depends on whose acclaim you're actually after. The question to ask yourself when you sit down to think, shall I pray? How shall I prioritize the things that are important to me? The question to ask is, whose attention am I after? And that's why Jesus talks about secrecy. He, he, he's not necessarily condemning the making of gift day videos. No, don't tell anyone what you gave. Not necessarily doing that. He's saying what matters is motive. What matters is the audience you have in mind. Now, Jesus advocates secrecy and suggests secrecy because he knows that at best, the motives of your heart are murky. Murky at best. Because of that, do your good deeds privately. Do your good deeds privately, in secret. Don't let your right hand know what your left hand is doing because I don't want you to lose out on the reward that God has for you. It's important that we understand that. Because we invite people to come to corporate prayer meetings where we don't just kind of arrive at the pub and then all go to separate rooms, shut the door and go, right, we're just going to pray on our own now. Or we pass the bucket round and we go, you know, we're going to give together. And we don't think that's wrong. Uh, and sometimes I've just said we're fasting as a church on this day or we'd like to get better at this. It's not wrong. It's important that we get that. And I know it's, I know it's not wrong because the rest of the New Testament, the overwhelming examples of praying is corporate prayer when the church gathers to pray it's corporate they don't talk about private devotional life it talks about the church being in a time of fasting together it talks about Paul even exhorts people to give generously to things so we can do it publicly but the import, the emphasis here is on reward Jesus is redirecting attention and he's helping us 
to gain the most reward treasure possible. Jesus doesn't say what the reward or treasure is going to be. I think for reasons, um, because it's always going to be different. Sometimes it's answer prayer. Sometimes it's more intimacy with God. Sometimes it's, it's just, I don't know, different things. So Jesus doesn't mention it. What is important for us to get, though, is that the private really ought to precede the public on anything. The private ought to precede and go before the public. So as elders, a few weeks ago, we were in a meeting, and, I, and I've kind of been wanting to ask this question for a while. I just sat down and said, so as a church, we don't really fast very much. Why? Because Jesus talks about it. We don't do it very much. Why? And I was impressed with just the, the level of honesty in the room. As we kind of said, I think the reason we don't do it more as a church is because we don't do it very much individually. And until we can stand up and say, let's do this, let's do that, it would be hypocritical if we weren't also discovering the value of it and the, the beauty of it in our own lives as well, which I thought was very refreshing. So you can't build a house until you've dug the foundation. And if it's all public and there's nothing going on in private, it's just hypocritical. And that leads us to our, our second repeating idea of what Jesus talks about. So he talks about um, uh, the disciplines of the Christian life, the treasure and the rewards in the Christian life. And in doing that, tells us the secret, a secret of the Christian life is that what matters isn't the activity you do, but the audience you do it to. The final two things we're going to just stay with for the last 13 minutes or so it's very precise, isn't it? The last 15 minutes or so of our time together is this. Jesus repeats the idea of hypocrites and he contrasts it with the idea of children. Don't be like the hypocrites. The word hypocrite is literally just the same word for actor. In the ancient world, when Jesus said hypocrite, people heard actor. Don't be an actor in public. Instead, be a son, be a daughter. He wants to draw that contrast. He wants us to understand that. See, in all of the times that Jesus talks about the disciplines in the Christian life, he says, your father will reward you. Your father knows what you need. Pray like this, our father in heaven. This is revolutionary. What Jesus is doing is just rethinking how we approach God. And we've grown up in a society where it's normal to talk about God as Father. So even people who aren't church people talk about God as Father sometimes or would understand that. Jesus was the one who introduced that to mainstream religious thought, if you like. In the Old Testament, it's there a handful of times. But in Jesus' ministry, he uses the word Father more than 240 times to describe God. God is a Father. And in the Sermon on the Mount, we've seen that this concept of father again is littered throughout it this concept of us as sons so in Matthew 5 we read in the first week Jesus says blessed are the peacemakers because they shall be called sons of God Uh, in verse 12 Jesus says um, when you do good deeds people will see them and they will give glory to your father who's in heaven Uh, and then following verse 12 he then lists how sons and daughters of the father are to behave so he talks about anger, talks about lust, talks about marriage and divorce, talks about loving your enemies. And actually he says, when you forgive your enemies, you'll be sons of your father. You'll be like your father. This concept, this idea is central to Jesus' thought. So the second secret then of the Christian life is this. To avoid performance, but 
to avoid performance in life, you need to understand your position in Christ. To avoid performance in life, understand your position in Christ. Now, I don't know about you, but I find it very hard sometimes to know how genuine I'm being. I find that my motives are definitely murky at best. So that sometimes even when I'm on my own praying, I have a hard time trying to strip away religious jargon from my thought and just approach God as a son. So often we fall into regular patterns of religiosity and spiritual jargon talk before God. Whereas what Jesus wants is for us to come as sons and daughters before our dad. You are not an orphan. You're not fatherless. You're a son. You're a daughter of God. And that affects everything about your life. See, Jesus modeled for us this new way of being human that he wants and wanted his followers to copy him, him, him in, imitate him in. So when people challenged Jesus, he replied, I know who my father is. Uh, and elsewhere, Jesus says, I only ever do what I see my father doing. It was central to Jesus' relating to God. And he impresses this on his disciples. So in his teaching, giving, praying, fasting, your father will provide, your father will do this. But in practice as well. So the feeding of the 5,000, first thing that Jesus does is he looks up to the heavens to show his disciples, I'm dependent on my Father. Elsewhere in, in one of the other Gospels, when healing someone who's mute, before he performs the healing, he looks up to the heavens. Does God live in the sky? No. But Jesus is modeling, I'm relying on my Father. He models that to his disciples. And in John chapter 14, before Jesus goes to be with the Father, he says to them, I will not leave you as orphans, but will send the comforter to you. If you're a Christian, you are not an orphan. You have God as your Father. You see, what's wrong with the, the way the Pharisees are praying, fasting, and giving is they're doing it like orphans. They're doing it like people who don't have a Father. They don't have a father who loves them. So consequently, they look, they look for their own reward before men. They look to get recognition before people. They look to get acclaim. They look to get status. And actually, too many Christians and too many of us live like that as well, relate to God like orphans. Um, and there's lots that could be said on this idea, but whether it's because of a, a bad experience of our own dads or whether it's just because life is ultra-competitive, we feel like life is one long exercise in self-justification and making sure that we're loved and accepted by people, getting rewards from people. Jesus says, no, you're sons of the Father. So I'm going to put this table up on the screen behind me. And here is a, a list of how orphans see God on the one hand, but what the Father's like on the other. So orphans see God as someone who is who loves conditionally based on our performance, but the Father loved us before we were created and even when we were lost in sin. Orphans see God as one who communicates poorly or only when he wants us to do something, but the Father loves to speak to his children and guides, counsels, rebukes, and cherishes them with his voice. Orphans see God as someone who delights in control and manipulates purely for his own end. But the father leads his children into increasing freedom, joy, and life through following him for their own good and his glory. Orphans see God as one who sets an unreasonable standard and is harsh and critical when we miss it. 
But the father is compassionate to his children, knows that they're frail and failing, and has covered their sin with the blood of his son. Orphans see God as one who is cold, aloof, and unable to display affection. But the father is warm, affectionate, using people, creation, and his voice, among many other ways to convey it. Orphans see God as one who's fickle, unreliable, and fulfills his word only when he feels like it. But the Father is completely trustworthy. In eternity, no one will accuse him of letting them down, for his ways and plans will be evident to all. Orphans see God as one who's unforgiving and merciless. But the Father is quick to forgive and merciful, time and time again, dealing so thoroughly with our sin that we never run into it again. And lastly, orphans see God as one who is stingy and who holds out on his children. But the Father is lavishly generous, spiritually and materially. And I'm sure as you looked at that list, there's probably a number of them where you thought, that's how I view God. That's how I approach God. That's why we gather. That's why we do this. That's why we meet in homes. That's why we disciple one another. That's why we help because all of us have a warped view of God as Father, depending on a number of different factors. We project our dad's image onto God. And if he was quick to anger, or if he was absent, or if he had a bad temper, if he was cold and not very affectionate towards us, we think, well, you're a father and he's a father, so I guess God must be like that. How scary. That's why so many people run from God when they fall into sin rather than drawing near him. Someone once told me after a sermon where I was preaching on the Father, the heart of God and God being Father, he came and spoke to me and said, listen, because, because so many people have bad experiences of fathers, you shouldn't really talk about God as a father. You should find other words, but don't use father. It's not a helpful image. To which I said, no. <laughs> That's exactly why we need to talk about God as father. You know, I tell my kids at the moment, you have two dads, me, a sinful father, and God, your heavenly perfect father who never does anything wrong. You know, for, I mentioned at the start, but four years ago this week, my dad died of cancer. And I can stand here today and talk about fathers because I know I'm not fatherless. I'm not an orphan because I have God as my father. And, yet, and that is the case for all of us if you're a Christian in this room. And the, the secret in the Christian life is understanding this. It's not a performance-driven life. It's a position-lived life. Because your sons, because your daughters, because he's the audience that you live for. Whatever activity you do, you do it for that audience, to please him, to love him, to know him, to receive affection and kindness from him. Your audience is your father. Your father welcomes you. Your father provides for you. Many people talk about um, George Muller, who founded some orphanages in Bristol in the 19th century. And there's one famous story where Muller came down to breakfast one morning. He had uh, breakfast time with 300 plus orphans and there was no food available to feed them. So they prayed before breakfast, said, let's see what the father will do. And before long, there was a knock on the door. Open the door and there was the baker. The baker said he was woke, local baker said he was woken at two in the morning by God telling him that the orphans needed bread. He baked them some bread. A little while later, there's another knock at the door. The milkman was driving past and his milk float broke down outside the orphanage. He knocked on the door, said, this milk's going to spoil. Do your orphans want it? 
Before long, he'd given breakfast to over 300 kids and only minutes before had nothing in the fridge or nothing in the cupboards. And what's significant about that is not only isn't God amazing the way he provides for those kids, what's significant was George Muller's approach to the whole thing. He came downstairs for breakfast, no food to be found anywhere. And what did he do? He gathered them to pray and he said this, let's see what the Father will do. Because he knows my God is a Father who provides for his children. Let's see what the Father will do. Your Father is the one who provides for you. He's the one who welcomes you. Your Father is the one who rewards you and who loves you just as you are. There's a story I came across recently um, where a guy talks about going into um, a church one morning and um, he was visiting there. He sat down next to uh, a guy that... um, Let me just bring this up here. I want to read this to us. On one such occasion, I was visiting a church and noticed as I walked into the meeting an older man and a boy of about 13. The boy had severe cerebral palsy. He was sitting in a wheelchair with a head restraint and clearly had no real ability to control his limbs or even to hold his head up. I smiled at the gentleman as I sat down. I later found out that he was the boy's grandfather. We stood to sing and I forgot all about those around me as I worshipped God. About halfway through, I sat down and as I did so, I noticed that the man had lifted the boy onto his lap and was cradling him in his arms with the boy's head on his shoulder. He was looking right into the boy's eyes, his face only inches away. As he held him, rocking backwards and forwards, I could clearly hear what he was saying. Over and over he was telling the boy, God loves you and I love you. You're a really special boy. God loves you and I love you. You're a really special boy. The boy could do nothing, not even stop the dribble running down his chin. And as I watched this scene, I was overcome with emotion and began to weep. I saw in an instant a picture of the unconditional love of God. I really could do nothing for him or anything of any account for myself, yet he loved me. I was special to him. That's how your father feels about you. I love you. You're a very special boy or girl. See, the secret of the Christian life is the Christian life in secret. And it's not the activity you do, but the audience you do it to. Uh, It's not the performance. It's your position in Christ. And understanding this is what Jesus is driving at. It's what he wants his disciples to see. When you give, when you pray, when you fast, you do it as dearly loved sons before a father. And actually it's knowing that that makes verse 15 possible. Verse 15 was the one that I read and when I read it, all of you went, huh? He can't mean that. (laughs) Verse 15, Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, unless you forgive others, your father will not forgive you. And all of us thought, I'm glad Jez is going to explain why Jesus didn't mean what we think he means. But when Jesus said, unless you forgive others, your father won't forgive you, what he really meant was, unless you forgive others, your father won't forgive you. 
And the reason he can say that is because you're a son, you're a daughter. And if you have been made, if you've been made with the DNA and if you've received the forgiveness of God, you're able to be like that to others. If you've received forgiveness, you can give it away. My son, Jesus is saying, you can forgive because you've been forgiven. Or, you know, you have my DNA in you because you're my son. You can't be a child of God and not be someone who's prone, or whose knee-jerk reaction is forgiveness. Because when you know you've been forgiven, you can forgive. Now, in just saying it glibly like that, I know I'm in danger of opening a whole world of pain for people. And I know that forgiveness is not easy. I know that forgiveness is not something that, depending on what you've experienced and what you've been through, I know that it's not something that can come quickly necessarily. It's important to know that forgiveness, what forgiveness is not. Forgiveness is not saying, it was okay what you did to me. Forgiveness is not saying, you're off the hook. I'll let, I'll let it go. Forgiveness is saying, I'll put you on God's hook. It's not my right to get vengeance, it's God's. Forgiveness is saying, what you did to me really hurt. I'm not going to minimize that, but I'll let God settle any score at the end of the day because I've been forgiven for far worse. Whatever has gone on in your life, whatever anyone has done to you, Jesus can say you need to forgive others because he knows what he's about to go through on the cross. That on the cross, Jesus could say, Father, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. You are a forgiven son, a forgiven daughter. And now, as one who's in the family of God, you can live in the family likeness and activity of that family. Receive forgiveness to give it away. Let's pray together, and then I'm going to invite John and the band to lead us in a song before we finish. Jesus, I pray that you'd make us a group of people who who pray, who fast, who give as children before their dad, not as employees before their bosses, not as orphans trying to get acclaim and reputation before other people, not in order to justify ourselves, not in order that other people would think well of us and go, wow, they're spiritual, but as children before a father. Father, I know that in talking about the subject of forgiveness so quickly, it's probably like opening wounds for people or ripping a band-aid off that hurts. But Jesus, I ask that you, the great shepherd, the great counsellor, would come and remind us just how much you have forgiven us, just how loved we are by you, that we would receive forgiveness from you in order that we're able to extend it to others. Jesus, I thank you that we are not orphans without fathers. We're sons and daughters dearly loved. Amen. Why don't we stand to our feet?